Welcome to Darkwater, Season 1 Finale, Part 2. Dr. Maurice Godwin, a criminal and forensic scientist that you might remember from the podcast Up and Vanished. He's been a friend and guest of our podcast since the beginning. He had this to say to the Huffington Post about the three discoveries at the time, and I quote, Considering that the three victims were found in the three-block area of Lumberton indicates the crimes are linked, and the killer lives locally, says Godwin, who spent years studying the geographical behavior of serial killers. The killer likely lives within two miles from where the lost body was found, he told the Huffington Post. Maurice would later assist us with the geographic profiles that, in theory, confirm the person responsible for the deaths, at the least, has an affinity or a purpose in that two-mile range within their life, if not actually living in the area. Meaning, they're in the area a lot. And a quick special shout-out to Maurice for giving me a signed copy of his book, Tracker, Hunting Down Serial Killers, which is available on Amazon. He gave that to me when we met at his home in Fayetteville. He jokingly gave me a hard time after realizing I hadn't read it yet. Great book. Thank you. We had an awesome time talking about our case, well-known North Carolina cases, his work on Up and Vanished, and the Tara Grinstead investigation, and true crime in general. We're hoping to continue to work with Dr. G on future endeavors. Now, concerning the area of East Lumberton where the three women were found, the Lumberton Police Department claimed this area was not a known source of crime despite earlier statements to the contrary. Not to mention the fact that the city had floodlights installed there due to complaints regarding crime well before these events even took place. In June 2017, after Megan's body was found, the FBI was contacted for assistance with the cases by the Lumberton Police Department. It should be noted that from what I can gather speaking to law enforcement and the family, there are two separate investigations being conducted by the Lumberton Police Department and the FBI, though they do communicate. But that doesn't mean they always communicate well, as we found. When we've talked with the FBI on this case in particular, we've always been told it's in the hands of the Lumberton Police Department, even though the FBI has a $30,000 reward for information. In July 2017, Cynthia Jacobs, otherwise known as Twister, disappeared in East Lumberton. She was said to be one of the last people, if not the very last person, to see Megan Oxendine alive. Many rumors have circulated about her demise, including one that came about as a result of a local man in East Lumberton having her possessions. Another rumor suggesting she was being trafficked. Another would have you believe she was found long ago behind some old warehouse in Lumberton, where other women have met their demise prior. A more hopeful story says she's hiding out, having fled after what happened to Megan. Like much of what's been said in Lumberton, it can't be confirmed. But Cynthia knew Rhonda and Megan to some degree and frequented the same areas. We know that much. Cynthia's family continues to search for her. It seems the case has grown cold until September 2017, when another woman goes missing in the same part of town. 20-year-old Abby Patterson had recently traveled from Florida to visit her family in North Carolina. She was also in rehab in Charlotte, North Carolina, prior to returning to Lumberton. She was staying with her mother while in town. She was last seen the morning of Tuesday, September 5th on East 9th Street, 
blocks from where the bodies were found, blocks away from a police department. Abby was different from the other women, it seemed, familiar with the drug lifestyle and struggling with addiction, but not involved with sex work to any degree, to anyone's knowledge. Neighbors and family confirm her getting into an old brown Buick with someone police call a male acquaintance, informing her mother she would return in an hour via text. That's the last message she sent. But can we be sure she sent the text? Regardless, one hour gives someone a lot of time. The police have interviewed the male driver, having learned the destination of Abby's trip with the acquaintance. However, they will not identify the location, Ruiz tell us. In addition, they will not confirm nor deny the man as a person of interest, nor will they confirm or deny any connections between Abby and the first woman. Their reasoning as is part of an ongoing investigation. We've tried many freedom of information at request on these cases, only to reach dead ends. Police stated at the time of Abby's disappearance that she could be held against her will, and the community was advised to be cautious. The FBI is involved in the missing persons case as well as the SBI and Lumberton Police Department. Her reward alone has grown to $10,000 in local private donations. It seems at the time people were looking high and low to find Abby. A search was even conducted in the ponds near Alamac Road, near an abandoned property in Lumberton, in September of 2018. No signs of her were found after the pond was drained. Abby brought attention as the young, pretty white girl. Society was more receptive to the urgency of her case versus the other women. Her disappearance sparked international news coverage related to the possibility of a serial killer in Lumberton and the potential connection with these crimes and victims. If not for her disappearance, who knows what traction the other cases would have gained in the media. This is the sad reality of how crimes are reported in our society. Her disappearance is another instance of the concept of the less dead. The fact that the other women were forgotten due to who they were, addicts or sex workers. Megan and Rhonda's lumpy heritage with its own history of injustice. This is despite the fact that Abby had issues with addiction as well, though her case has been discussed in a completely different context because she was from a white family, her mother working with the Robinson County Board of Elections. Abby was even reported as a fourth missing woman by many news outlets, despite the fact that Cynthia Jacobs had been missing since July, making the count potentially five women caught up in this string of events. Overall, you can find convoluted theories and hearsay online, seemingly lumping all these crimes together. During past investigations of this nature, such as the Grim Sleeper in LA, officers would write NHI, no human involved. They first called the cases the Strawberry Murders, Strawberry being slang for someone who has sex for drugs. The narrow-minded origins of those cases and their subsequent investigations feel similar to this story. These cases have so many unanswered questions. Fast forward a few months now into the new year. In January 2018, after canvassing East Lumberton and interviewing hundreds of people with no viable leads, the FBI held a press conference announcing a $30,000 reward and asking for information about the deaths and disappearances of Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan, particular timeline regarding their whereabouts during the days just before their deaths. 
In this interview, Special Agent John Strong responded that there was no connection at the time between the other women and Abby Patterson when questioned by a local reporter. For the time being, Abby would stay divided from the other women, despite the astonishing proximity and similarity in the cases in the form of addiction in a city at the end of the day that doesn't have a relatively huge population. After months of messages, cold emails, and phone calls, on Sunday, June 3rd, 2018, we were humbled by the experience of meeting and interviewing the family of Rhonda Jones at a hotel off the side of I-95 in Lumberton. It was truly the jump off point for our investigative journey and our ability to understand the very real human and suffering behind the deaths and disappearances face to face. Prior to our departure from Lumberton that day, Rhonda's mom, Sheila, told us that she almost called the entire meeting off. But right as she was considering remaining home that day, a picture of Rhonda hanging above her ashes fell from the wall. Sheila said she knew it was a sign from Rhonda to quote, get up. It was also the one year anniversary of the discovery of Megan's body. Realizing all of this, a moment of synchronicity, coincidence or not, washed over me. We knew that day how real all this was, in a place not too far from home, right in our backyards. Later in July 2018, in a town just down the road from Lumberton in Pembroke, a woman named Rita Maynor, also having a history of addiction, was found in an abandoned home wrapped up in construction materials. Some of her nails were missing. Ultimately, her autopsy had returned with natural causes listed as her reason of death. It caused much speculation about the similarities in other cases in Robinson County. To the point, the FBI was contacted by the Pembroke Police Department to consider any potential connections. The FBI put out a statement saying that they were aware, but have not commented on that investigation since. Then in mid-November 2018, another breaking headline news case circles the nation when a 13-year-old girl in Lumberton named Hanya Aguilar was brazenly kidnapped in her front yard after she went out to start her family's SUV before school. Her body was found in shallow water after she was kidnapped, raped, and murdered, allegedly by a man named Michael McClellan. One of the worst parts of her murder is that it could have been prevented. McClellan's DNA had shown up in a 2016 sexual assault kit for a prior rape, which apparently failed to capture enough attention to have him apprehended, which would have saved Hanya's life. Who knows how many other cases received a similar fate. While individual officers were thrown under the bus for the error as sacrificial lambs, the true crisis exposed was the institutional failure in the form of the sexual assault kit backlog and how rape was treated at large by law enforcement. Again, only so much has changed since the 1970s. Thanks to further investigation, journalist Russ Bowen of CBS 17 and 32 Degrees podcast about the same cases we've covered, found that not only was the handling of the 2016 rape evidence botched, but the kits for Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan had languished for 20 months without testing. This sparked outrage amongst the families of victims. And due to that collective outrage, all stemming from Hanya's case, North Carolina started the initiative to make a dent in its backlog, as well as a mandatory 45-day max for sexual assault kit submission. The reasoning from law enforcement as to why the kits weren't submitted was that the bodies were so decomposed that a sexual assault test kit 
wouldn't have yielded any pertinent information or any viable results. Which if that were the case, then why sit on the results for 20 months without saying anything? The fingernail clippings and other undisclosed evidence regarding Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan's cases is still in testing purgatory at the NC State Crime Lab with no updates thus far. And we're only talking about the evidence in these specific cases. Who knows what else is out there? Fast forward to March of 2019. We covered the Shattered the Silence March in Lumberton. We witnessed the citizens of Robinson County come together and march for justice regarding all the unsolved homicides and disappearances over the years. Law enforcement also participated to an extent. Other than Brett and I, only one other journalist from South Carolina, Brianna Fernandez, was there to cover the march. To me, that's it's shocking that all the DNA testing, all the rape kids, you know, go missing in a department. So when I see all these people just marching for some their loved ones, you know, that still they have no word where they are, if they're alive or not. Pretty sad, you know, especially in, a lumber, in the Robinson County community. So not everyone's really tight together. The march was led by Chief McNeil and families of victims. The march was peaceful and somber. The police participating in the march is a contrast of what you might see in today's climate. The marchers made their way throughout downtown Lumberton and were welcomed by officers in the parking lot of the police department. A month later, in April 2019, Close to the two-year anniversary of the first bodies being found, we received leaked audio of a meeting between the family of Rhonda Jones, the FBI, Lumberton PD, North Carolina SBI, and the medical examiner's office. The family has allowed us to share a description of the audio in our podcast. The meeting seemed to at first bring more frustration to the family than help, with a ray of hope at the end. The medical examiner was determined to present overdose as the potential culprit despite the suspicious circumstances behind the deaths, providing little closure at best. That being said, investigators said there were ultimately multiple leads and people they still needed to check on, people who knew Rhonda, or the people that last made contact with her. There are many theories we've heard throughout the duration of this investigation. If you followed the podcast prior, you know there's a running theory about Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan. Not our theory, but a theory that was presented to us by actual locals and online sleuths. It included real people with intense criminal records from Lumberton that actually had contact and conflicts with the victims on occasion. The theory went this way. Rhonda and Kristen steal drugs from a female drug dealer and are killed by her male henchman in retaliation. Then Megan met her end for stumbling onto the truth and speaking up. Nick and I went down quite the rabbit hole trying to confirm what we could from this theory and its various connections. I've learned about numerous stories since then of real detectives spending years on theories and suspects that simply look good on paper. So I don't feel too let down now about our relatively brief exploration of that theory. Well, this theory regarding all three women, we can say has been completely debunked. We know this has been confirmed for one of the families by law enforcement. Through a series of polygraphs and fact-checking, they've learned this isn't possible. This narrative was also further perpetuated by detectives working the cases early on. One ignorantly saying, that's just what happens to Rhonda's mom. Heartbreaking. I often wonder why Rhonda would do something that dangerous while trying to get her kids back. 
It makes more sense now, knowing it didn't happen. All this means the case is wide open as far as what could have happened and who's responsible. A lot of time has passed since we last visited Lumberton. There's a lot of people we'd like to talk to. At different times, Lumberton police, including Chief McNeil and investigative Captain Terry Parker, had agreed to speak to us at length, also saying this to the sister of a victim in one case, only to later fail to reply to any of our messages. We've only managed to get a quick surface-level interview with Chief McNeil during the Shattered the Silence March referenced earlier. It's also rumored Terry Parker has been removed from the participation in cases within his division, but that is yet to be confirmed. He was one of the first to say he would speak to us. Now well over two years later, he has remained elusive ever since. The Robinson County District Attorney's Office hasn't replied to our very thorough Freedom of Information Act request, also submitted years ago at this point. Legally, they were supposed to tell us at least why they couldn't provide any information. In an effort to not be biased, we have always had an open invitation for the people involved to tell their part of the story, specifically law enforcement. They've always been cordial, but after years of striking out, it starts to wear on you. Nick and I have often debated the possibility of a serial killer operating in Lumberton. And while it certainly looks that way on paper, no matter how much we force the metaphorical red string from case to case, we can't be sure. But I'd like to share some recent thought regarding just how many serial killers really are likely operating in America. From a technical standpoint, whatever the motivation, if one person could be linked to these deaths, they are, by definition, a serial killer. Despite all information and data available, we are still barely scratching the surface of understanding serial murder in a modern context. 2005 marked the first national symposium on serial murder, involving academics and law enforcement in the discussion. The keynote address was delivered by a man named Robert Mueller. Yes, that Robert Mueller, of the Mueller Report. Here's a quote from his address at the symposium. For years, law enforcement investigators, academics, mental health experts, and the media have studied serial murder from Jack the Ripper in the late 1800s to the sniper killings in 2002, and from the Zodiac Killer in California to the BTK Killer in Kansas. These diverse groups have long attempted to understand the complex issues related to serial murder investigations. Until the Serial Murder Symposium, however, there have been few attempts to reach a consensus on some of these issues. And speaking of reaching a consensus, Let me give you another perspective leading to some of our final thoughts on Lumberton. In an Atlantic article from October 2019 entitled, Are Serial Killers More Common Than We Think? Author James Graham proposes the possibility of thousands of serial killers in America versus the usual numbers you might hear, somewhere in the ballpark of 30 to 50. He turns to some recent research to defend this idea. Here are his words in the short article. The helter-skelter 1970s and 80s are remembered as the serial killer's heyday. Think of Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and David Son of Sam Berkowitz. Since then, data suggests 
The number of serial killers, defined by the National Institute of Justice as those who commit two or more separate murders, often with a psychological motive and a sadistic sexual component, has plunged, falling 85% in three decades. The FBI now says that serial killers account for fewer than 1% of killings. Several reasons are commonly cited for this decline. Among them, longer prison sentences and a reduction in parole. Many serial killers are convicted murderers who, after serving time, kill again. Better forensic science is also credited, as are cultural and technological shifts, less hitchhiking, more helicopter parents, 60 million security cameras. But here's a curious fact. As the number of serial killings has supposedly fallen, so too has the rate of murder cases solved or cleared in detective lingo. In 1965, the U.S. homicide clearance rate was 91%. By 2017, it had dropped to 61.6%, one of the lowest rates in the Western world. In other words, about 40% of the time, murderers get away with murder. Some experts believe that serial killers are responsible for a significant number of these unsolved murders. Thomas Hargrove, the founder of the Murder Accountability Project, a nonprofit that compiles data on homicide, has examined how many unsolved murders are linked by DNA evidence. He believes that at least 2% of murders are committed by serial offenders, translating to about 2,100 unidentified serial killers. Michael Arntfield, a retired police detective and the author of 12 books on serial murder, agrees that the FBI's projections are off. He blames patchy data, among other things, but thinks the number of active serial killers is more like 3,000 or 4,000. If such estimates are right, why aren't more killers getting caught? Take Samuel Little. He isn't a household name, yet the California inmates' confessed death toll across 14 states in four decades appears to be triple Bundy's. Since 2012, police have linked him to at least 60 homicides, and he claims to have committed 33 more. According to Arntfeld, killers like Little have benefited from the falling clearance rate, which he in turn attributes to a handful of factors. Increase expertise. Killers have studied other murderers' mistakes and know how to fool cops. For example, by planning false evidence, constrained resources. Thanks to stagnant salaries, detectives in some areas may be less qualified than their predecessors. Growing social isolation, which can make potential victims more vulnerable, and greater geographic mobility, which can make dots harder to connect. One illustration of the last point can be found in the trucking industry which has drawn scrutiny from law enforcement officials, as an FBI press release put it in 2016. If there is such a thing as an ideal profession for a serial killer, it may well be as a long-haul truck driver. Truckers appeared on the Bureau's radar more than a decade ago when an investigation revealed that women were being murdered along the I-40 corridor. Since then, the FBI's Highway Serial Killings Initiative has investigated the murders of more than 750 victims found near highways and identified nearly 450 potential suspects, a disproportionate number of them truck drivers. The victims in these cases are primarily women who are living high-risk, transient lifestyles, the FBI said. They're frequently picked up at truck stops or service stations. Mike Amidot, the founder of Radford University's Serial Killer Information Center, says truckers are well-positioned to evade detection. 
The more locations you're operating in, he added, the more difficult it is for law enforcement to see a link. Of course, would-be homicidal maniacs lurk in all kinds of jobs. Bundy was a law student, Samuel Little was a boxer, and an ambulance attendant. In his book Murder in Plain English, Armfield breaks down the top serial killer professions and finds that truckers are joined by police and military personnel, forestry workers, hotel porters, and warehouse managers, among others. In each case, the problem isn't so much the people who fill the job, but the job itself. The key question, Amidot told me, is whether a given vocation's duties hinder or enable killing on the side. The gas station attendant has no opportunity. The long-haul trucker has lots of opportunity. And that's the end of the article. So, is someone out there in Lumberton, the right maniac with the right opportunity and the right job, still killing the type of people society easily forgets to a soundtrack of silence as the world moves on, as people forget? Maybe. There's one more note to add to our timeline. 20-year-old Elizabeth Lee Locklear was found deceased in a field off Moses Road in Lumberton by Robeson County Sheriff's deputies at 6.25 p.m. on Saturday, May 1st of this year, after being spotted by someone who lives in the area. Moses Road is located between East 5th Street and some of the more obscure highways heading south out of Robeson County. The same land following the same railroad tracks and intersecting roads, along which many of other women have met their ends under violent and sometimes unexplainable circumstances. Elizabeth was laid to rest in the Lumbee Memorial Garden Cemetery on Tuesday, May 5th. Her death is still a mystery, like much else in Robeson County. It's hard not letting your mind run away with possibilities, as we've been doing for the last three years. This story feels like a distorted truth you keep chasing down the road to nowhere. A truth that constantly evades you in the heat of a deceptively quiet southern town, as questions disguise themselves as hallucinations of answers. Answers you think you might find by going further into a deep and unknown countryside, as tranquil as it is terrifying when you come to know it. The more you find, the more you sense you'll truly never get to the bottom of the character that is Lumberton. The more you feel you'll never unmask it, nor the monsters it's created and enabled. There's a string of macabre events, shady dealings and, and a void of information, inviting speculation and conspiracy through to no end. The film Blue Velvet, David Lynch's 1986 neo-noir mystery, was shot in Wilmington, North Carolina, with the exception of one scene in Lumberton, the fictional setting of the movie. Blue Velvet is a captivating, abstract, disturbing, and at times confusing dive into the roots of human depravity, cruelty, and corruption, much like our real exploration of Lumberton. There is a recurring line you might note throughout a careful viewing, the line reminds me of the difficulty in digging into these cases, and Lumberton in general, while at the same time not being able to pull myself away. Nick and I want the truth. We want to shine a light on all that's left to find. But for now, to quote Blue Velvet, now it's dark. Thank you to Nick for being my friend and creative partner through all of this. Thank you, Maurice Godwin, for your guidance and encouragement. Thank you, Justin of Moonside Sound, for believing in this project as our friend and for being the mastermind behind the soundtrack. 
Thank you to all the families that continue to open their lives to us in hopes they can bring awareness to these stories. Thank you to Brett for having me be a part of this journey. Uh, thank you to Shelley Lynch, the public affairs specialist at the Charlotte FBI field office for responding to our emails seriously. Uh, and of course, thank you to all of you, the listeners, every person who shared the podcast with a friend or posted about it or sent us questions or interacted with us in any way. You all helped spread the word about these cases. So thank you. We hope you follow us into the next chapter of this journey when the time is right. If you have information about these cases, particularly the whereabouts of any of the women in the days immediately preceding their death or disappearance, please contact the FBI and feel free to contact us as well at darkwaterpod at gmail.com, darkwaterpod at gmail.com, or at our Google Voice line, 919-307-9331. That's 919-307-9331. Until next time, this has been Darkwater Podcast.